through, the, through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe. From the hand of the enemy, he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. No one of them survived. They believed his promises and sang his praise, but they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert, they gave, they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness, they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. In the camp, they grew envious of Moses and of Aaron, who consecrated to the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It buried the company of Abram. Fire blazed among their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he, would, so he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Now? All right. Well, again, good morning on the mic. Um, yeah, the, the, the Psalms provide a really handy summary. Uh, and they add a detail that we're going to focus on this morning. Um, I'm going to take a sort of a roundabout approach, so I'm going to ask you to be patient with me. Um, there's so much going on in Exodus 32 and 33 that it, it's really challenging to decide, what's the sermon about this morning? Um, sometimes it's easier, you know, there's just sort of the one idea, but um, for, for those who are joining us for the first time, um, welcome, and we've been going through the book of Exodus and now find ourselves in that moment that was just described in the psalm uh, in which Israel is going to suddenly and almost inexplicably uh, cast aside what they've been given, what they've been commanded in exchange for an idol. Um, and I suppose... There's plenty of room for sermons about what motivates that. Not least, perhaps, our disappointment with God, our frustration, our uncertainty. Um, I can't tell that there's much sympathy in the text for Israel at this moment. Forty days and forty nights, Moses was gone. And in that time, they lost heart, despaired of his return, and decided to go another route. We'll look at the details of that. But, I mean, on a generous reading, we might think, you know, there's a lot of reasons to be disappointed with God. There's a lot of things that, that 
um, justify our feelings, our, our, our complex, fraught feelings about the way God does things, about how slow God is sometimes uh, to answer us one way or another, about the suffering He invites us to. Plenty of reasons that we might talk about being disappointed with God, but this morning, actually, we're going to focus on God's disappointment with His people. And by extension, our disappointment with His people. Anybody here ever been frustrated by the church? (laughs) Anybody here ever been disgusted by the church? You're not alone, and there's good reason for that. I want to start by listening to the culture a little bit. We're going to think about how the church is perceived. Go to the next slide. And in order to do that, I've transcribed a part of a podcast that I listened to recently. Now, I'll make a disclaimer here. I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts, like by comedians virtually none of whom are Christians, okay, so I'm not even going to tell you what this podcast is, lest I be accused of a recommendation I would later regret, right? <laughs> I think they're really funny, and, and I've got a pretty high tolerance for what they think is funny, and, and um, at the same time, I listen to these for entertainment, but at the same time, I consistently find myself listening to these to pay attention to how they perceive the world. And it is, I can't tell you how how frequently very, very popular, mainstream, huge number podcasts by unbelievers or people with a, a Christian background perhaps and some with other religious backgrounds end up talking about God and faith and the Christian church, and religion, it, it just, it's constantly coming up. And so I, I, I tend to take a lot out of those. So I've transcribed this conversation. I'm going to, um, I'll, just, I'll just skip the words that are, uh, have little asterisks in there indicating, right? But um, what's happening in this podcast is there's... Uh, a cast of four friends, and they basically sit around every week and talk about different topics that have come up in the news and in culture and crack wise and crack on each other, and they have a great time, but they're, they're actually genuinely friends. They started as friends and then grew up and, ca- and became uh, successful in comedy and in podcasts, and part of what makes this so successful as is the case for most of the podcasts that are, that are very successful in this space, is the sincerity. That even though they're making fun and making fun of each other and they're playing around a lot and they say wild stuff that's outrageous just to get a laugh, in the midst of that, they're actually saying what they feel about things. They're actually sharing and opening up. And in this moment, the, um, the sort of leader of the crew, the most successful of these comedians, starts 
sharing about his recent experience. So go to the next slide. And then I'm just going to read through so you guys in the booth, just as I, as I advance slide, just keep going. Andrew, I, I went to church this Sunday, right? Sagar, so how was that? It was phenomenal. But what type of church? Yeah, what type? That's an important question. Yeah, I don't know. It was in a public school. I think it was non-denominational. Oh, those are good. I don't know what it was. The pastor said lit. He like threw on a hoodie. We were all looking at you when I said that. (laughs) Mark. A Christian TED Talk with a rock concert. Yeah. You see how y'all do, bro? This is why there's like 15 types of Christianity. Christians are like comics. They're just going to find a way while you ain't anything. You do an all-Christianity, bro. Okay, so I'm in here, and it was um, my wife really wanted to go. Her brother goes, and I'm like, all right, this is going to be cool. It was beautiful, man. Like the feeling that I got, first of all, I'm crying within three minutes. I walk in, and it starts with the music. I am bawling, crying within three minutes, okay? It's in a public school auditorium, and it is, it's not in some fancy, you know, Joel Osteen church. It's in a public school auditorium, like the real stuff. Yeah, the real, bro. Yeah, go Jaguars. Jesus wasn't going to be in some fancy synagogue, you know what I mean? He was in the streets with the people, you know what I mean? Yeah, playing ball, hooping. Hooping. So I'm, bro, they are singing the most beautiful. I love Christian music. Bro, like honestly, I'm mad at uh, Pastor Carl. Yeah, you should be. Because I was up in the Hillsong crying too. If you play any Christian music for me right now, I'll cry on the spot right now. I'll cry on the spot right now if we play any Christian music, bro. And then Mark starts singing, Walk upon the water, da, da, da. Andrew is every youth minister's dream. Yeah, we play great music. It's not really about Jesus. We're just hanging out. Andrew. Hold on one second. Oceans? Oceans will get you, bro. Oceans is a flamethrower. I will call upon your name. That's about how he was singing. Don't ruin it, bro. Where we go on Sundays to hate Jews. Okay, so, right. This is, this is parody, right? They're leaning in a little bit to the perception of the church's history of bigotry. Not really, but no, it was so beautiful to the music. It was like filling me up, and I felt so amazing. It was these incredible feelings, and you said something, I think it was on the pod maybe last week, but like you could tell how successful a religion is by the fruit it bears, and I'm in this, I'm in this church, and I'm feeling so incredible, just listening to the music, I'm three minutes in, and I'm like, oh, there's a reason this stuff took over the world, bro. Like, Christianity is incredible. 
all I'm trying to say is it was so beautiful. And I'm in this room, there was love, and it was all these different people coming together, and they were submitting themselves to a higher power. It was a beautiful thing to see with humans. I think in this individualized society that we live in, you see so much selfishness. And for these people that sit in this room and then just give it up for something they don't even know is there, it made me emotional. It was beautiful. And that's why when you're like, do I want these Christian values on my kids, referring to their earlier conversation about Christian values in public schools, like, I can talk to my kid about evolution. You know what I can't do? is like when I'm not with him for eight hours a day is fill him up with that love and joy that makes him be a better person to the people around him. He's not being a better person because you're telling him to be good. He's being a better person because he feels God loves him. And when God fills you up, you got a little extra to give around. It was just beautiful, man. I was astounded by this conversation. I've listened to who knows how many hours of these guys. And just to hear him open up about this very kind of personal experience. But I'm telling you, sincerity is the, is the product. Just being as real as possible about what's going on, even with them. And what you don't get in the transcript is them like laughing the entire time at him and like making little comments on the side and stuff. I, I put some of that in there, but... Um, it's amazing. But what stood out to me was their familiarity with sort of pop Christianity. Two things. One, they all know Hillsong. These are not church people. They all know Hillsong. So good job, Hillsong. You succeeded in becoming a global brand, right? And by extension, they know about the scandal I'm disappointed. I'm mad at Pastor Carl. I'm talking about Carl Lenz, the recently disgraced pastor of Hillsong. Go to yeah, we're there. Not long before that, during the pandemic, another podcast dropped called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill," published by Christianity Today and. It, it covered extensively the horrific catastrophe that was the truth about the largest, fastest-growing megachurch in America and throughout the world in terms of megachurches, not church growth per se, but big, single-brand churches. Mark Driscoll, like Lentz, but even more extensively, failed badly, right? Scandal, disgrace. But what I want to point out is that this is public disgrace, and everybody sees it. Everybody knows, oh, these are those Christians. These are those people. These are the leaders of those Christians. These are the ones who are supposed to be the examples, and they're frauds, absolute frauds. They are power-hungry, money-hungry, sex-hungry. They are terrible by the standards of the guys in this conversation. Not by Christian standards. By their standards. They're looking at the church represented 
in this way and going like, ugh, right? The good news is there is also in this episode evidence that there's still a willingness to experience a community of faith in a different way. That's good. But I don't know about you, I feel the same way about those scandals. I, I feel disgusted. I feel embarrassed. There was a little clip of that uh, about Lentz that, that popped up on my YouTube and it started playing, you know, a little preview deal on your YouTube. It started playing and I made a, I made a noise of disgust and Cohen goes, what? And I go, I'm just, that just makes me sick. Like, that this is... If they're going to come in contact, if they know anything about Christianity, they know Hillsong. This is what they're going to see. This is, this is the perception of the church. But the fact is, as an insider, I know it's true. I know how much the church disappoints me. The people in the church. I know how much I disappoint me. I know how weak and sinful we are. Part of what bothers me is that there's this whole thing of putting out there a different image than the truth to try to convince people that this is where you can come and finally be around good people. That's a lie. <laughs> but I know the disappointment. I feel that disappointment. I feel that anger. And so do many, many others. Let's look at the next slide. This is 2022 data from Pew. I don't know if you can read the small lettering there. The downward trend, that's us. The upward trend, that's people who are unaffiliated. Right? It's picked up precipitously since the early 90s and by all current reckonings is accelerating at an unbelievable rate. And there are many reasons for that. But among those reasons is the fact that time after time, televangelist after televangelist, famous pastor after famous pastor, church after church demonstrates a hateful, bigoted, foolish, selfish attitude. And people are sick of it. Sick of it. This is from Greg Sterling. He is the uh, uh, dean at Yale Divinity School. Happens to be a, a Church of Christ guy. His take is this. The current generation is wary of institutional forms of Christ Christianity for many reasons. The scandals of the institutional church, the larger distrust of institutions, the failure of churches to proclaim the gospel clearly or authentically have all contributed. In my opinion, a crucial factor is the way younger people think about community and by extension, religion. They regard religion as a matter of optional personal programming. Many create their own networks rather than join one that incorporates them. Similarly, a few years ago, Derek Thompson writes for The Atlantic. On the next slide. 
on the next slide. Making friends as an adult without a weekly congregation is hard. Establishing a weekend routine to soothe Sunday afternoon nerves is hard. Reconciling the overwhelming sense of life's importance with the universe's ostensible indifference to human suffering is hard. Although belief in God is no panacea for these problems, religion is more than a theism. It is a bundle, a theory of the world, a community, a social identity, a means of finding peace and purpose in a weekly routine. Those like me who have largely rejected this package, this package deal, often find themselves shopping a la carte for meaning, community, and routine to fill a faith-shaped void. Their politics is a religion. Their work is a religion. Their spin class is a church. And not looking at their phone for several consecutive hours is a Sabbath. I think you hear in that podcast manuscript both a derision and a longing. I think both of those things are true. And that's what I bring to this text this morning as we read Exodus 32 and 33 together. A recognition of the seriousness of the failure of God's people And a real question about how it is we are meant to respond to that as members of God's people. What are we to do with this? Many have responded, I'm out. I'm done with this. Nothing changes. Many have responded, I will find what I need somewhere else. Somehow I will find it, but it won't be with this church. And I understand that. I understand that feeling. I think God invites us to a different response this morning. Go to the next one. Let's read in Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us, who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. (laughs) When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are, 
Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. All right, let's stop there for a moment. On the next slide, I would like to suggest to you that what's going on here, this idolatry, is about rewriting the story. It's about rewriting the story. Uh, what I'm not going to do this morning is uh, try to identify our idolatries. I think when we do that, it can get a little overdetermined sometimes. I think the fundamental question is how are you rewriting the story of God in your life to suit you? You see what they did? They, they didn't say, oh, since Moses is gone, we'll drop Yahweh and we'll make for ourselves a different God and we'll worship that God. No, what they did was they create, created this idol and then said, these are your gods. This is who brought you up out of, the, this is who saved you. This is what did the work. This is what got you here. Worship this, right? Rewriting the story, writing God out of the story, or at least corrupting the image of God in the story. Perhaps because of impatience, right? They see the delay. Perhaps because of uncertainty. Maybe it's just a case of weakness of character. Had Moses, had, had Aaron stood up to the pressure of folding immediately, things could have been different. But the result is what we would call syncretism, the blending of, of two different religious ideas. So, they take all of the, the things that Moses has just commanded them to do. Remember the Lord brought you up out of Egypt. Make sacrifices to the Lord. Celebrate festivals to the Lord. And they go, alright, we'll direct that here. We're going to find it somewhere else. If we can't find it in God, if God's not fast enough for us, if God's not clear enough for us, We'll rewrite the story and make it work for us. And so God's response is, well, first a diagnosis. Go to the next one. What do you think stiff-necked means? Does anybody, does anybody have a sense of what that is? Stiff-necked? I'm sure you've heard this before, but maybe you never... Uh, unmoving? In, in what sense? Stubborn. Right, right, right. So, does anybody know where the imagery comes from? Think about an animal with, an, an animal with a bridle on it, right? You, you want to turn it to go this way, but it, its neck is stiff. It won't turn. It won't be led. Right? God's 
diagnosis is Israel is unleadable. They, they won't take direction. <laughs> and so his response is wrath. Now, before we conjure up all of our concerns about the so-called Old Testament God being wrathful and vengeful and violent, just remember all along the journey out of Egypt, Israel has been whiny and disobedient and stubborn and stupid. And God never destroyed them. Never even proposed to. He's been patient all along. But this is a bridge too far. Once you start rewriting the story, once you say, I'm going to find God somewhere else and I'm going to make that God in the image that I want it to be in so that I can worship it the way that I want to worship it. Once you change the story so that you no longer give Yahweh credit for bringing Israel out of Egypt, God loses it. Because of the stakes, you see. Because of the stakes. Tell me again. We've talked about this. What is the purpose of saving Israel? Somebody tell me. To show the world what God is like. To fulfill the Abrahamic promise to make his descendants a blessing to all the nations. To fulfill the priestly role given only a few chapters ago to mediate between God and the rest of the nations and ultimately to show everyone that Yahweh redeemed Israel and that is who God is. And if you change the story, everything, everything breaks down. The whole point of the thing is lost. The reason for Israel's existence, in other words, is void. And so, why wouldn't God do away with them? This is what you're free for. This is what you exist for. To show the world the glory of God. And when you consistently show the world that you worship at a different altar, Ego and money, self-assurance, power. When that's your testimony to the world, don't be surprised if God's wrath burns hot against you. Now, I am no fan. I really, I feel very uncomfortable with the kinds of diagnoses that I've heard from televangelists throughout the years. Anything from the AIDS epidemic to Hurricane Katrina to 9-11. And the explanation being, well, it's all the perverts. That God is punishing all of the sinful, pagan, Islamic, whatever. That's pretty gross and pretty inexplicable to me. but I don't want that reaction 
in my perspective, to mute the message here, that when it comes to God's own people, we may very well need to ask ourselves, what are we supposed to be learning from this? This punishment, this suffering. What are we supposed to change? Because God is unhappy with us. Not them. Not the others. Us. We are the ones who are responsible for proclaiming the glory of God to the nations. You better believe God is not going to take that commission lightly. Not for a minute. And so, God proposes a new plan. Uh, Okay, I'll start over with you. We've done the start over thing. We did it with Noah. Right? This is an echo of that same story. Now, rather than all creation being reduced to the family of Noah, it's Israel being reduced to the family of Moses. God says, let's make that work. Maybe you'll have a whole bunch of righteous kids. Good luck. But the plan has to go forward because the promise has been made. One way or another, the nations will be blessed by the descendants of Abraham. So this question, what if despite redemption, God's people fail to serve God's purposes? I invite you to meditate on this question in all seriousness. So we look at ourselves. What if despite our redemption, we fail to serve God's purposes? Fortunately, Moses, go to the next one. Moses is unwilling to play along. Next slide. Do we need to take away a phone up there? Prayer in keeping with God's purposes. That's how I want to describe Moses' intercession. So let's read. Let's continue reading here. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the, in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. (laughs) Okay, so three points in this intercession. First of all, Moses says, well, what about your people? Then what about your purpose? Then what about your promise? So in interceding, Moses is, what audacity, reminding God of God's best interest. Right? First of all, 
these are your people, not my people, because remember God had just said to Moses, your people have created an idol. And Moses goes, no, 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 no. Your people, your people who you saved, that's who we're talking about. They're yours. You've said they are your special inheritance. So let's be real here. Then he says, why should the Egyptians say, right, that this, that, and the other has happened? In other words, if, if it's bad that the nations are watching Israel's unfaithfulness, how much worse if they watch Israel's destruction? If you saved them just to destroy them, what message will that send? I mean, it's an amazing thing to consider, twisting God's arm here. The psalmists do the same thing on a very personal level. They cry out, God save me, and if you don't, everybody's going to see. Right? Because if it serves God's purpose best to transform Israel rather than destroy Israel, that's what God should do. And then lastly, remember, you made promises. You made promises. And it's not enough just to, just to keep me alive as one descendant. You said you would multiply the children of all of the tribes. You can't. You can't, do, you can't break your promise. And the Lord changed his mind. Now, I want you to hear that. For me, this is the most difficult thing about prayer. I'm just going to confess to you here. I struggle with prayer for a variety of reasons. This is the most significant reason. It's hard for me to feel that I or us asking something would change God's mind. That, that events aren't already set on their course. That things aren't already how they're going to be. That God, if God wants something, isn't already going to do what God wants. Because he's God. And he wants it. But that's rewriting the story. This is our story. This is our story. And our story is very clear. Here and in other places... God will listen to his people and change his mind. Now, we'll have to work out what all that means about God in some other class, okay? I'd love to talk about that at length. But that's the facts, okay? Intercession on behalf of God's hard-hearted, stiff-necked, idolatrous people results in God's patient, loving, forgiving transformation of those people. So as I ponder, well, what's our, what's our response supposed to be to the church? When we look at the church on the big picture or in the very personal and up-close picture where it fails me, where I don't encounter the fruits of the Spirit in my brothers and sisters, where there's conflict and difficulty, or simply just bored old disappointment. What's my response to this? 
And I believe Moses is the paradigm of our response. He goes to God and says, spare your people. Spare your people for your purposes. Rather than abandoning them, rather than going off on his own as God himself invited him to do and starting his own thing, start his own spin class, whatever. Rather than that, he says, no, because these are your people, these are my people. Spare them. There are still some inevitable uh, consequences. Sorry, we should have advanced one here. Well, we'll go one more. Click. That's everything I just said. There are some inevitable consequences. I don't want to gloss over those. In the first place, Moses is still angry. Let's not pretend like, oh, he just doesn't care. I mean, he is really mad. And he does this pretty amazing ritual where he grinds the, he grinds the gold calf down, puts it in water, and makes them drink it. Right? Fairly aggressive, I'll grant. May not be a tactic we can take. But the gist of it is pretty powerful. You're going to swallow what you've done. Washing your mouth out with soap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're going to swallow what, you're, what, what you've done. And more than that, there is some house cleaning. Now, this is violent. This is uncomfortable for us moderns. Maybe I should say for us Christians, I... I don't know how exactly you think and feel about that. I feel a little uncomfortable. But here is what happens. Moses says, who's with me? I'm with you. Who's with me? And only the Levites come over. Everybody else has already rewritten the story. They've already moved on. And so he commissions the Levites to go around find the members of their extended family that are responsible for inciting this rebellion and put them to the sword. That's not easy to take in. I, I, I get that. Uh, it was 3,000 people. Israel was definitely a much larger multitude than that. So the implication is that these are people that were particularly responsible for coming to Aaron and proposing the idea. They took the lead in this. And they're responsible, and there are consequences. This reminds me of, or maybe I should say, the story of Ananias and Sapphira reminds me of this. There are these moments at the beginning of the formation of God's people when God just won't play just will not play. Because if you derail at the beginning, you'll never be going in the right direction. And so, he purges the false leaders. And then the whole people also suffer. There's a plague. Again, I'm not really in the game of, of identifying causation. Um... I think it's really, really hard. I think you have moments like when the disciples ask the, 
ask the Lord, why did the tower of Siloam fall and kill all those people who sinned? And Jesus goes, nobody sinned. Right? It's not that simple. You, you don't just get to you don't just get to identify every catastrophe as God's wrathful hand. It's way more complex than that. But in this story, the point we have to take to heart is that there are consequences for the church when we rewrite the story. And when rewriting the story bears false witness to the nations. So let's quickly look at the last three slides here. Really just two. Despite Moses' anger, despite the consequences, he engages in persistent intercession. In an, in an astonishing way, really. Um, we'll jump forward to 32.30. He says, it says, On the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. See, my angel shall go in front, in front of you. Nevertheless, when the day comes for punishment, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord sent the plague because of the calf that they had made. The Lord said to Moses, Go, leave this place, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, and go to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will, go, I will not go up among you, or I would consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> when the people heard these harsh words, they mourned, and not one put on ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do to you. Therefore the Israelites stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Far off from the camp, he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise and stand, each of them at the entrance of their tents, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and bow down and all of them at the entrance of their tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then he would return to the camp, but his young assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, 
See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways, so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Show me your glory, I pray. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you the name the Lord and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. And the Lord continued, see there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but not uh, but my face you shall not see so i had to, we had to go through all of that just to see um what may not be completely obvious but the, the fact is moses is just relentless here like the widow in jesus in jesus's teaching right the parable of the, the widow who who persists in petitioning this indifferent judge and the point of Jesus' teaching is you just keep asking and keep asking and keep asking. You'll get what you need. Or the parable of the friend who comes to his, his friend's house at midnight, knocking on the door, waking up the family, asking for bread, right? There's a need for repentance, right? There's a need for repentance. Israel has to mourn. And so they do that visibly in a way that's, that's, that's appropriate. Um, but the more important thing is that, is that Moses is like desperately trying to figure out how to make atonement. Because he's just been given all of the instructions for the, 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 the atonement system. It doesn't exist yet. They haven't constructed the tabernacle. There's no altar to make sacrifices. There's no Ark of the Covenant to go and sprinkle blood on. There's no way to make atonement. And so he goes, I'll go see if I can do it. I don't know. And what he offers is pretty amazing. He says, if you're not going to forgive your people, then blot my name out of the book too. Right? So he's gone the other direction. It's not just, no, no, I won't take the offer to become the only Israelite left. Now it's, if you won't forgive them, I'm out too. Solidarity with God's people. Now this is an astonishing thing when you think about how angry he is and how wrong they are. Now ask yourself about your own attitude toward the church and her failings. 
regardless of how angry you are and how wrong we are, would you do what Moses does? Not only intercede for them, but say, I am with them all the way. If they're out, I'm out. That's the basis of this prayer of intercession. And then Moses gets to the very heart of the matter, which is that if God will not go up with them, will not dwell in their midst as he had done and as he had planned, that's what the tabernacle was about. The presence of God in the center of the camp and all of the 12 tribes around it. That's what in, in our midst refers to. And God has now said, I'm not doing that. Because if I'm in the middle of you all pagans, it's going to be bad for you. I'm not going to reside in the midst of you. An angel will go in front of you. I'm not leading you anymore. I'm going I'm to keep my distance because I don't want to burn you up. And Moses says, no, this, will, this won't work. This will not work. We have to have you in our presence. If you're not going to be with us, don't send us. We, we can't do this. It's pointless. And so God relents a little, and Moses keeps pressing, and God relents more. And Moses finally says, okay, we need to show me your glory. Show me your glory. And we know what that means because of what God says. He says, well, I'm going to pass by you and I will, have, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That grace and that mercy is the glory that Moses is begging for. Show me your glory. Show me the grace and mercy that lets us live and lets the plan proceed. Right? This is the only way forward. I love Moses' persistence. I'm, I'm humbled by it. Last slide. I, I believe his intercession is an example not only for church leaders, but for all of us who experience disappointment with the church's unfaithfulness. And I think his humility is our guide. In the book of Numbers it said, Now the man Moses was very humble, more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. And how much humility would it take to turn down that offer? God said, Of all the people, I'll keep you. Let's start over. And Moses said, No, no, no. He interceded in solidarity with God's people in their darkest hour. I don't know what our darkest hour is. We've got 2,000 years of dark hours. But right now, in our culture, it's pretty dark. It's looking pretty grim. And a lot of that is just our fault. It's just our fault. And I think we have to take responsibility for that and mourn for that on a local level here, rather than pointing the finger at big churches and famous pastors, we have to own it and ask ourselves, will we do less than Moses? Or will we intercede? Let's pray.